You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. All right. Um, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine. And uh, I've been off preaching for a couple of weeks, so it's good to be back. And um, we're, we're going to engage in a three-week series this week, and I'm going to talk about that uh, in a second. And then after these three weeks, we're going to be opening up the Old Testament. We haven't spent much time in the Old Testament recently, and we're going to be looking at the life of David and high drama. Uh, I think there's been some cheesy movies made about the life of David, but not like a blockbuster, you know what I mean? Um, that needs to happen because there's so much drama in David's life, and and you see in every page how God is the hero of his story. And so we're going to seek to uh, understand that over the course of maybe, you know, 12, 13, 14 weeks um, very soon. But today we're talking about something different. And and here's what I want to say just to kind of lead us into that. We've had the local church since Jesus instituted it for about 2,000 years now. And there have been some very significant periods in church history where there's been a need for correction, where the church has lost its way, okay? And one of the most important periods we could talk about is about 500 years ago, and many have heard of it, and a lot of us are, or all of us are sitting here as a result of the Protestant Reformation. And that took place about 500 years ago. The, The church had lost its way and steered far clear from what the Bible teaches about the nature of true biblical Christianity. And part of the controversy at that time, 500 years ago, was this. What is the nature of a true church? What is a true church? And the church at that time, the only church there was, was saying that a true church is this. A true church is is an organization that acknowledges the Pope. All you got to do to find a true church is to figure out if those people acknowledge the authority of the Pope. If they do, that's a true church. And the reformers came along, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli. And they came and they said, nope, that's not how you find a true church. It's not the Pope. The only infallible source of truth in contrast to the Pope is God's Word, the Bible. And that's how you find a true church. A true church is where the Scriptures are elevated as the true authority. The Bible will judge the Pope or church tradition or church officers. Well, after a while, the Reformers... Reformed churches, Reformation churches, Protestant churches. They said there's three main marks of a true church. In contrast to making it about the Pope, they said that these three things have to be present for there to be a true church. And there's more than these things, okay, but never less than these things, all right? They said that there's three main visible marks of a true church, And that is the preaching of God's word, opening up the Bible, explaining it, 
illustrating it, applying it like we do every week here. So the, first, there's the preaching of the word. Second, this kind of fancy term, they call it the administration of the sacraments. What they mean is they practice the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then finally, church discipline. The reformer said that these are marks that will be present in any true church. Preaching of the word, baptism and Lord's Supper, and church discipline. Now, there's more than that, of course, but never less. So in light of that, historically speaking, and then current day, as elders, we've had some questions in the last year or so. And really over the course of church life, these questions always come up about baptism and the Lord's Supper and church discipline. That The elders thought it would be a good idea before we dive into the life of David, just do a quick three-week series on these things. What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? What is church discipline? Why are these important marks of a true church? And what do they have to do with our lives? And what does the Bible say about them, most importantly? And so today, we're going to focus on baptism. Baptism. What is it and why we do it? Those are the two questions I want us to walk out of here understanding. Baptism. What is it and why do we do it? So let's start with that first question. Baptism, what is it? The first thing I want you to know and I want you to remember is this. Baptism is a symbol. Baptism is a symbol. Now think about it like this. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God loves his symbols. Another way to say it is God loves his pictures. Another way to say it would be God loves his signs. And there's lots of different symbols, pictures, signs, but let's just use the word symbol. Lots of different symbols in the Bible. And they always function this way. It's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Physical reminder of a spiritual reality. So think about it like this. Have you ever hiked up a mountain? Like my, my sons and I have had the opportunity to hike, um, I think three 14, 14ers, as, as the mountain climbers say, 14,000 footers in Colorado um, in the last decade. And man, that's hard. And you get tired. And when you're up at 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, 12,000 feet, and you get fatigued. And you're thinking, man, how much farther to the, to the peak? Because that's the goal, right? And you come around the bend, and there's a sign there. <clears throat> and it said, it's physical, and you can read it, and you can see it. And it says, the summit, this way. The peak, this way, right? Those signs on the trail, those are like a gift, a gift of encouragement, right? They are not the goal. That sign is not the goal. But what does that sign do? That, that sign points us to the goal. It's leading us to the reality, right? It's not the reality. It's saying, read me, understand me, and I'm going to take you to the reality. If you listen to the sign, if you look at the sign and actually believe it, right? Follow this sign, it will take you to the summit. It will take you to the peak. So that's how signs function. They say, look at me, read the sign, see where the sign points to, 
There's the reality. Go there. And that's how signs, pictures, symbols, baptism is a symbol or a sign or a picture. That's how that functions in the Bible. Lots of them. You can think about lots of other examples. So think about what the Bible says about marriage. Ephesians 5, classic marriage text. Physical marriage, a man and a woman getting married in our world today is a picture. It's a symbol of what? Christ and the church. So when you see a flourishing married couple that you should be reminded of, oh, that's that husband is like Jesus who lays down his life for the church. And, and, and they're, they're united together. They love one another, never to be separated. Or think about it like this. We're going to talk about it next week, the Lord's Supper. It's a, an amazing symbol of Christ's body broken. We tear off that bread, right? It's a sign. It's a symbol. It reminds me that the blood that was shed. The Bible says in, in the opening chapters of the Bible that we ourselves are signs, symbols. What? We are made in the image of God. We point to the greater reality. In some mysterious sense, yes, there's sin. Yes, the image of God is shattered in some sense. But still, there's, there's some there. We're made in his image. We point to God. We point to the reality. We are made in his image. You could think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Centuries of animals and, and crops given as offerings, what, what does the book of Hebrews say? It was, a, it was a symbol. All pointing to the reality. What's the reality? John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. So there's symbols, signs, pictures, all over the Bible. God loves his signs and his pictures, his symbols. They're physical realities that represent a spiritual truth. And baptism is one of the major ones. Baptism, baptism as a symbol is a major one for the Christian life. Very, very, very significant physical reality that represents a spiritual truth. So baptism, what is it? It's a symbol. So the next question you might think of, if you're thinking of an outline here, the first thing I want you to know is baptism is a symbol. That's point one. But what's 1A? Well, 1A is, well, what does it symbolize? Great question. What does baptism symbolize? It's so powerful, it's so beautiful, and it's so important in the Christian life. We would want to know what does it symbolize, right? Well, there's a lot we could say here. But a majority of the time in the Bible, baptism symbolizes something called union with Christ. It's a theological term, and if you uh, understand it, you'll see it all over the Bible. So I'm going to try to help you understand what that is this morning, and then when you're reading your Bible, you'll be able to see it jump off the page all over the place. Anytime in your Bible when you see the words in Christ or with Christ, abide in Christ, That's all union with Christ. What does it mean? Union with Christ is the biblical idea that when you become a Christian, you are united in some mysterious sense that you don't actually 
necessarily feel in your physical body, but remember, we don't define our experience by what we feel. We define our experience by what the Bible says, right? So you might not feel it, but the Bible says it's true. This is the reality, spiritually speaking. You are united to Jesus. You're vitally connected to Jesus for your life. He lives in you and you live in him. What is true of him is now true of you. Okay? I know it sounds kind of abstract, but if you're looking for it in the Bible, you, you receive it and you'll see it all the time. Here's a classic verse. If you think about what I just said, you'll see this verse uh, and see how you knew with Christ. It's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified, what? With Christ. So I, 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 didn't, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago on a cross. Neither was Paul. But he's saying, in a, in a spiritual sense, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. We're united. And the life I live now in the flesh, so the life that I have right now in my human body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A lot we could say about that verse, right? But I want you to see the idea with Christ, Christ who lives in me. This is just Paul talking about union with Christ. What's true of Christ is true of me. Christ is alive in me. I am alive in him. What's true of Jesus is true of me. He took my sin. I take his righteousness. He lives in me. I abide in him. What he loves, I love. What he cares about, I care about. There's so much more we could say about union with Christ. But we're, we're talking about baptism today. But what's the point of me saying all this? Breaking down this theological concept, what's the point? The point is, as a symbol, baptism as a symbol, symbolizes union with Christ in a very profound and meaningful way. Baptism, when we do it, when you, you can think of it in your head as, as you, as you um, imagine the baptisms that we do on Sunday morning sometimes, that symbol is a symbol of union with Christ in a very profound and meaningful way. Again, because when we become Christians, the Bible says that we're united to Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. The benefits of what he did in his life, death, and resurrection, the benefits of that are credited to me because I'm united to him by faith when I trust him, right? In a sense, it's like, it's like my marriage, right? The Bible says that Kim and I are one. Genesis chapter 1, the first marriage, right? God declares Adam and Eve to be one flesh. Let, may there never be a separation, right? So, like, what does that mean? Well, it, we're one in, in what sense? We're, we're one in the sense that if she cares about something, I care about it. Um, you think about it financially, right? Like her money is my money. My money is my money. Did you guys catch that? No, it was a joke. <laughs> I just want to see if you're listening. Her money is my money. My money is her money. Just want to make sure you're awake. Her loves are my loves. My loves are her loves. We have kids. Her kids are my kids. My kids are her kids, right? 
All those things are true because we're united. We abide with each other. We're connected to each other. And it's the same idea with that, that Paul's talking about here, and we're going to see in another verse in a second. Same with a Christian and Jesus. And baptism symbolizes this. It's a symbol of this unity, of this union, right? Look at, look at Romans 6, 3 through 4. And again, on the screen. Again, this is, this is some challenging Bible language that uh, sometimes taking the Greek and putting it into English is challenging. Um, a lot we could say here, but I just want you to see a couple things. Let me just read it first. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, there it is again, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, there it is again, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so it's like, if this is true, this is, if this is true of Jesus, now this is true of you, we too might walk in newness of life, right? So again, a lot we could say about this text, but again, I want you to see those words, into Christ Jesus, buried therefore with him by baptism into death. This is all union with Christ's language in reference to baptism. So just as Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected, baptism symbolizes this as we are united to him. We, we also reap the benefits of what is true of him is true of us. Like Jesus died, and, and, and he was buried, and he rose again. And same with our symbol of baptism. We, death doesn't hold us. We don't stay under the water when we baptize somebody. That would be death. We rise, you would drown, right? No, we rise out of the waters like Jesus rose out of the tomb and we walk in newness of life like it says there, just like Jesus walked in newness of life with a new resurrected body. Paul's saying now spiritually, we, we are, are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And baptism symbolizes this. I pass through the waters that could kill me. Just like if Jesus would have stayed dead, he would have been dead. But he didn't stay dead. He rose. And so we rise out of the water too. It's a powerful symbol. And Paul is saying here that, that when you're united to Jesus, your baptism symbolizes all of that. You with me? I know it's kind of abstract language and such, but I want, I want you to feel the, what the Bible says about the power of the symbol and how it symbolizes being united to Jesus and experiencing what he experienced. What he experienced is also what we experience in a spiritual sense. And baptism symbolizes that. So what is baptism? It's a symbol. And it symbolizes our union with Christ. What is true of him is true of us. Because we're united to him, we're connected to him by faith. A lot more we can say about that, the role of the Holy Spirit and all that, but we don't have time for that this morning. I want you to understand, first of all, baptism is a symbol, symbolizes our union with Christ. Are you with me? Second, baptism is a declaration. Baptism is a declaration. There's lots of examples of the power of a declaration in our culture today. I think one of the most obvious examples is when it comes to college football. In college recruiting. I mean, college recruiting in football. I mean, football, if you, y'all ever lived in the South? I lived in Nashville for two years. I mean, that's, 
I mean, the Badgers, it's a big deal. Yeah, Camp Randall, Sunday, it's fun and all that, right? Dude, when you live in the South, especially the Southeast, like, it's a religion. It's a different deal, right? Auburn, Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, like, college game day is is crazy. I mean, this is like the temple. We go to the temple at the stadium and we worship. It's big, big business. Millions and millions of dollars every year on the line based on wins and losses of some 18, 19-year-olds running around on the field, right? Big, big business. So recruiting as a result is a really big business. I mean, it's dog-eat-dog on the recruiting trail. High, high stakes. And so these kids, they get recruited hard. And the athletic directors and the coaches and everybody around these kids are waiting for that day when they hear, where's this kid going to go? National signing day. Press conferences. Today, you know, you have the press conference, the mic, and the kid says, you know, today, you know, in conjunction with my family, I've decided to become a whatever. And people freak out and, you know, Alabama or Auburn or Florida State or whoever, they get the, they get the, the number one recruit and everybody freaks out. Right? High drama. <clears throat> well, a few years ago, there was a, there was an event that was even more high drama than this when it came to a declaration of intent to be on a team. And it involved LeBron James. You guys might remember, maybe you're not a fan, but LeBron James played for Cleveland, hometown boy, and he became a free agent. He's going to switch teams. And the teams that were going to get LeBron, they knew they had a real good shot of winning the title. Big stakes. Again, millions of dollars on the line. And LeBron was, was, was deciding between these teams. This is like 2012, I think, or 11 maybe. And he holds this huge event, live TV, millions of viewers, where he's going to announce where he's going. And then he, he does this big event, and he famously said, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach, meaning I'm going to leave the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I'm going to go play for the Miami Heat. And sure enough, they won two championships. But that event was huge. So many eyeballs. What was the point? LeBron James is going to make a declaration. The college football high school star football player is going to make a declaration. Now, here's the deal. In both cases, the college or the high school kid and LeBron, before the declaration happened, they knew what they were going to do. The people around them knew what they were going to do probably. In LeBron's case, the lawyers were probably already drawing up all the documentation to make this thing happen. But what's the point? The point is very important for them to make it public. To stand up and make a formal, solid, no-nonsense declaration. This is where I'm going. LeBron declared to the world, I am changing teams. I used to be on this team And now I'm going to be on this team. A new allegiance, a new set of teammates. That needed to be publicly declared. We all get that. Even more profound maybe is, again, talking about marriage. We do this when we get married, right? 
We stand up in front of God and family and friends, and we declare a new allegiance, right? I'm with her. She's with me. Like, she's on Team Nielsen now, right? Not not like there's much cash on the line in that case, but (laughs) we're working on it. We're working on it. Sorry, babe. But she knows I love her. She knows I'm committed to her. I know how she feels about me before we even made that declaration, right? I've said yes to her. She said yes to me. We've got engagement rings that, that point to that reality, right? So then let's make it publicly official. That's why we do wedding ceremonies, right? You could just go to the justice of the peace and get married legally, but there's something more powerful about getting everybody together before God, family, and friends having a party, and we're going to declare this officially. That's important. There's more weight to it. There's more importance in this way. A public declaration is a very important part of the process. And in the same way, first of all, baptism is a symbol. Secondly, baptism is a declaration. It's a declaration of saying yes to Jesus. I'm united to him. He's united to me. What's true of him is now true of me now. He takes my sin. I get his righteousness by faith as a gift, not by works. I got nothing to boast about. Like, I'm on team Jesus now. That's what baptism says. Saying no to the old way of life and, and yes to the, what does it say there? Newness of life, verse 4. It's a physical sign and declaration of what has taken place inwardly, right? It's a physical reality that declares the spiritual inner reality. And this this is exactly what we find in the scriptures when it comes to the pattern of declaration of baptism. People hear the gospel, they receive it, and they get baptized, right? You can see this in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. I'll just read this. Now when they heard this, heard what? The preaching of the gospel. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. So that's the response to the preaching of the gospel. Repent and believe. And then what? And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A lot we could say there, but I want you to see verse 41. So those who received his word, meaning received the preaching of the gospel, repented and believed. So those who received his word, what happened then? They were baptized. They made the public declaration, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So I just show you that to show that that's the pattern biblically. You hear the gospel, you believe it, you trust it, you say yes to Jesus, and then you formally, physically, symbolize that saying yes to Jesus, united to Jesus in the act of baptism, right? It's like the, the, the signing the letter of intent that the college football player does. It's she walks down the aisle, I do, I do, we're married, all right, here we go, right? That's what baptism is. It's a symbol. It's a declaration. It's a symbol. Like Jesus died, I died to my old self. Like Jesus was raised from the power of sin that sin could have no hold on him, 
I too am raised to live a new life. That's what it symbolizes. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin's power. I'm dead to sin's condemnation. And when I rise out of those waters, it symbolizes that. And it's a declaration, like a signing day or a marriage. I'm on team Jesus now. So baptism, what is it? It's a symbol. It's a declaration. Finally, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Well, mainly because Jesus commands it. Look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. These are the final words of Jesus recorded by Matthew before he's ascended to the Father and sends his Holy Spirit. He says to the first church planters, this is what I want you to do, guys, and implication for us as well. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there it is. It's a straight command from Jesus. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus just straight up commands it. He commands it. And, and evidently, the first church planners in the book of Acts, that's why they did what we just read in chapter 2 of, of Acts. Because he commanded it. So we don't have like a detailed explanation. Like, like we don't have a part of the Bible that says, here is why baptism is so important and why I'm commanding you to do it. Jesus just says do it. It's important. Make it a priority. So ultimately, that's why we do it. Now, I don't want to engage in, in conjecture too far. But I think if, if you're really seeking for more of an answer, um, if you're wondering why did Jesus command it, I think we could take a guess that, that would probably not steer too far from the truth. And what I'm going to say is going to borrow from next week in terms of why Jesus did you command baptism? Well, think about it like this. Jesus tells us explicitly why he commands us to do the Lord's Supper. This is kind of an intro to the Lord's Supper that we're going to do in a second. What did Jesus say? Jesus, why are you supposed to do this? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Right? Jesus said we're supposed to eat and drink in remembrance, using the symbol, the body and blood of Jesus, to remember him, to not forget. See, God created us as three-dimensional creatures, five senses, right? God created us this way, and it's really good. <clears throat> so when you see broken bread and taste the, the bitterness of what historically is usually wine, real wine, when your physical senses are engaged, oftentimes there's a greater meaning to that. It's not just hearing, it's smelling and tasting and seeing. I think God knows this. He created us for this. So, so when symbols... God's pictures, his signs, his symbols, when they engage our, our human senses, 
It drives a groove of remembrance into our brains, I think. You with me? So, like, that makes sense with the Lord's Supper, right? It's not just here that he died, here that he suffered, here that he bled. No, you're going to see it. You're going to taste it. There's, there's, there's something really powerful in that because God created us that way, right? So in the same way with baptism, when you go under the water and, and you come out and feel the cleansing power of it and you go down and feel the potential death of that symbol of death and burial and that if you don't come out of that water, you're going to die but then you do come up and pass through those waters that could kill you and you're raised, that symbolism, just like the Lord's Supper, it engages our senses. It's powerful. It engages, engages who God created us to be. It symbolizes resurrection and Jesus that Jesus experienced, that we experience now and more fully in the future. It's a gift. So this symbol engages our senses. It does something profound in our hearts that if we didn't have it, we would miss it, I think. And I think this is part of the reason why Jesus commands us to do it. That's why there's such joy in it. Like when we baptize people on a Sunday morning, it's like some of the loudest applause we ever have around here. It's a celebration because we get that symbol. And that symbol is important. It's, it's meaningful. It's powerful. Buried with him in his death raised to walk in newness of life. We say it every time. And so we're compelled to applaud and smile and congratulate when we see it done. I think that might be why Jesus commanded it in the same way as the Lord's Supper that we're going to talk about next week. So what is baptism? It's a symbol. It's a declaration. Why do we do it? Because Jesus commanded it for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these pictures that you've given that are profound, that are a blessing to us. God, I pray for more baptisms around here. I pray that you would raise the spiritually dead through faithful evangelism, through faithful discipleship. God, I pray that you would use our words to go forth boldly by the power of your Spirit that you would raise the spiritually dead, that you would make more children of you through the preaching, through the, through the sharing of the truth of what has happened in history, and that we would be able to celebrate more and more people coming to know you at our church. We ask that you would do this, Lord, and that we would just find great joy in these symbols, these pictures, these signs that you have given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanted to do a little Q&A. We've got a little time. Um, I forgot to put that slide up there, um, but let's see if anybody beat me to the punch here. If not, I... Um... Oh, look at that. Um, okay, great question. What did the baptisms of John the Baptist accomplish, and why was Jesus baptized? This is a great question. So... This is a crossover from Old Testament to New Testament. 
So some of you might be new to your Bible. You don't know who John the Baptist was. Um, John the Baptist was a, a forerunner to Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. And he preached a baptism of repentance. So in the Old Testament, they practiced baptism. Jewish people practiced baptism. It was a, a form of, usually more of a symbol of washing away of sin. And so people would um, become Jewish, become what part of God's people in the Old Testament, um, and they would convert to that, and then they would become part of God's family in the Old Testament, Jewish. And part of that becoming, it would be uh, circumcision for men, and a lot of times throughout the course of Jewish history in the Old Testament, people would get baptized, um, and it typically symbolized um, washing away of sin. And so that's what John the Baptist was doing. And he was saying, there's coming somebody after me, he says, who won't baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, basically anticipating that when Jesus comes, something new is happening. Something new is happening. And then we could talk a lot about the sending of the Holy Spirit that John talked about, but that's another sermon for another day. Um, why did Jesus get baptized? Well, scholars uh, would say, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, but scholars would say that Jesus had nothing to repent of. Of course, the Bible says Jesus had nothing to repent of. That's clear. Jesus was perfect. So why did Jesus get baptized? Well, most people say that um, it was to show solidarity with God's people. Okay? That he was the true Jew. He was the ultimate representative. Okay? And in that sense, he, he did everything that a faithful Jew would do. He did what the law commanded. And as a result, he is the perfect representative of all that God commanded. He did everything perfectly. And so that's why Jesus got baptized, to, to show that he was united to God's people. And then, as their perfect representative, like in contrast to Adam, you can see this fleshed out in Romans chapter 5, contrast to Adam, who was the failed representative, Jesus is the perfect representative. He did everything perfectly. He did exactly what the law said. And, and, and getting baptized, symbolizing uh, his union with God's people was part of that. That's not making sense right now. Um, we can follow up and talk more about that, or I can send you some resources. Um, so here's some other questions. And I'm not going to do these now, but I will do these on a podcast this week, okay? I'll just read them. What are the qualifications for who should baptize someone and in what format? Does it have to be done in a church? Does it have to be done with a pastor? Good question. Another question. If you were baptized as a child without declaring your faith on your own, uh, should you be baptized again as an adult? Great question. Comes up a lot in our membership interviews. Infant baptism, yes or no? No. <laughs> but I'll explain that. I'll explain that. And, 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 and this is not an issue we divide over necessarily. I went to a seminary that teaches infant baptism. So that's like a secondary tertiary issue. Um, we, we wouldn't say that that's a, a primary doctrine. Um, I can see why people are persuaded of infant baptism. We just don't teach it around here. I'm not persuaded of it. I'll talk about that in the podcast. Um, if you were baptized as a child and not fully understanding the significance of baptism, should an adult be rebaptized? Great question. 
I will address all those in a podcast this week. So look out for that if those questions are of particular interest to you.